BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. If you're like most people, you want to live a moral life to do more good than bad in this world. The system under and through which we live generates massive inequality along racial lines. And one area this is crushingly obvious is our still segregated schools. Black children are less likely to attend school alongside white children than was the case 50 years ago. So what's the right thing for a white person to do? Writer Courtney Martin, in her new book, Learning in Public, tells the story of her choice to send her daughter to her Oakland neighborhood school and the movement of white parents who send their children to majority black schools to help reverse resegregation. That's coming up on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Courtney Martin thought long and hard about where to send her first kid to school, deciding between an innovative private school, one of the sought-after public schools in North Oakland, or Emerson, her neighborhood public school designated as failing because of its test scores. The Oakland-based writer chronicles the experience in her new book, Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America from My Daughter's School. In choosing to send her white child to a majority black school, Martin comes to better understand the racial segregation still present within U.S. schools, And she analyzes why so many self-described progressive white parents still favor schools where other families share their racial and economic backgrounds. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Thank you so much, Alexis. So, Courtney, um, tell us how you got started on this journey, you know, those kind of those months and, and years where people are thinking about where to send their kids to school. Well, as you and I both know well, um, there's a lot of time post uh, birthing a child where you just walk endlessly around your neighborhood with that baby in an Ergo or a Bjorn. And um, that was really the beginning of this journey for me. I, I had my daughter Maya in 2013, and I had just moved to Oakland from Brooklyn. And I would just walk endlessly in this neighborhood, Temescal, which is a gentrifying neighborhood, you know, historically black and before that um, Italian. And I was kind of, you know, in that space of disequilibrium that follows becoming a mother, just kind of trying to figure out who I was and and what this new stage of life was going to be. And I kept passing this elementary school, which was, to me, very beautiful. I mean, I was still coming straight from Brooklyn. So it was like the redwoods and the gorgeous flowers and the murals. Um, And there were a bunch of kids always outside, you know, screaming and joyful. And I started to look closer and realize there were so few white kids on the playground, which made very little sense because in this neighborhood, there were a lot of white families with young children. And so that was when I first sort of asked myself, like, where are the white kids? And, um, you know, as I say in the book, that was the beginning of a journey of a thousand moral miles. Right. 
And then your daughter uh, is approaching TK, transitional kindergarten, right? So she's about uh, about four years old, and it starts to become, you know, more like, oh, okay, we really got to pick a school. She's got she's got to go to uh, to some kind of school soon. And um, what was the where did you look? Like, what were the schools that you were really looking at? Well, um, interestingly, this was this moment, like a crossroads for me in motherhood, because I think I've taken a pretty lazy approach in many ways to motherhood, where I have all these great friends who are much more fastidious and research oriented than I am when it comes to parenting. And so I would say like, okay, what diaper cream are you using? Or when do we have to send our kid to the dentist? Or all of these questions. And so when I started to talk about schools in that same way, I was just sort of like flowing with that same um, way of approaching parenting, all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, I think this is one of these moments where I can't just depend on the kind of, you know, whisper network of white and privileged parents that are um, a big part of my social group. I need to like think more deeply about this. Um, the received wisdom was, and like the, literally the spreadsheets that I got from um, parents who were a few steps ahead of me um, were that I needed to get my kid into Peralta, Chabot, sometimes Glenview. There's just, there are 81 schools in the Oakland um, school district, but there are uh, just a handful of them that most white and economically privileged folks send their kids to. And so I got the spreadsheet with all those schools. Um, but again, I live very proximate, just a few blocks from Emerson Elementary. I live pretty close to Piedmont Avenue and also very close to Park Day, which is a private school. So um, I was like, let me give these places a chance. Let me try to understand what why it is that these aren't showing up on the spreadsheet. And I have to say, you know, as you pointed out, Googling um, Emerson and finding that it was a one out of 10 on greatschools.org was disheartening because I didn't know anything about those scores at the time and kind of what constituted them. Yeah. Now what, I understand. What does constitute them? Yeah. Like how do those schools work? Um, well, how, how do those I scores mean, work? It's, there, we could get into a whole like intricate thing, but the basic thing is it's largely about uh, standardized tests and standardized tests largely map directly onto socioeconomic background. So you do have some schools, um, famously, like the really hard driving charter schools who manage to get kids from low income backgrounds to score really well on standardized tests. But that comes with it a very particular kind of pedagogy um, that some believe <clears throat> is like straight up material uh, militaristic, you know, it's like drilling, drilling, drilling. Um, so most, most schools, public schools like those in Oakland that have a lot of kids from low income backgrounds are going to have fairly low test scores. Some do better than others at raising those test scores, which becomes a big uh, theme of the book, as you know. Um, anyway, I went on these tours. I was mostly astounded at the, um, kind of clamoring towards the white and our privileged schools. You, it was hard to even get on the tours. You got on the wait list and, um, there was just a lot of talk about how you could maneuver your kid into those schools, given that many families don't live in those neighborhood catchments. Um, and when I went to Emerson, I was, I was really struck by how beautiful it was. There were great kids there, great teachers. Um, and, and initially I was kind of interested in the fact that the principal, unlike some of the more white and highly resourced schools, didn't seem like she was trying to sell us on anything. Um, she was kind of like, this is our school. We're a loving, imperfect community. You're welcome to join. Um, I'm not going to tap dance for you. And I found that almost like disconcerting at first. Like, wait, why isn't she tap dancing for me? But then as I deconstructed that, I was like, that's a really white expectation that I'm, I'm going to show up and she's going to like sell me on this public school. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of white parents approach it as consumers instead of as citizens. Yeah. So you get you're obviously become more and more attracted to Emerson and consider sending um, Maya there. As you talk to other people, you know, in the neighborhood, friends, white, black, Mexican. What, what did you hear from them uh, about your possible decision? I heard a 
range of stuff. I mean, I think one thing that I would urge listeners to think about is I think people's memories of a school have a very long life and schools actually change very quickly. So one thing I heard a lot was from parents who had like teenagers now saying, oh, like you definitely shouldn't look at Emerson. Um, and when I would try to uh, probe a little further and say like, so what's your knowledge of it now? What's going on with it these days? They'd say, oh, I haven't been there in 10 years, but everyone knows you shouldn't go there. Hmm. Um, so one thing is I got a lot of feedback from people of a variety of racial and economic backgrounds about the school that was really rooted in 10 year, you know, 10 year old um, experiences and knowledge. Um, and even that actually, that's one of the things I'm really struck by in this journey was it's, it felt as if people felt very free to give opinions about the school when they knew so little about it in general. Um, and one of the things I've been asking people as they think about what to do after reading this book is even if you don't decide to send your kid to an integrating school, even if you just operate with some intellectual humility about what you know about the schools around you and don't feed the sort of beast of talking about black and brown schools as inherently bad and white schools as inherently good, that would move equity forward in and of itself because I think it would cut down on this um, kind of, like I said, the whisper network effect where people just don't even look at other schools because of of the rumor mill. It just kind of becomes what everybody knows about a school X or Y. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, you know, a- as you then progress down the line, you decide that you're going to send Maya to uh, to Emerson. And I mean, how did it go? She's been there now for a couple of years now. She, well, she's going on her fourth year there. Fourth amazingly. Year. Yeah, she's going to be in second grade. And my younger daughter, Stella, is starting in kindergarten. So now we're going to have two kids there. Um and it went great. I mean, that's the the wild thing about this whole journey is that I can, part of why I wrote the book now, some people have wondered, like, why not wait to write the book? You're only like four years into this journey is that my experience of writing uh, with previous projects is that you kind of lose the visceral experience that makes writing really come alive and be great. And I feel like in some ways I've already almost lost that pre-TK nervousness of like what it feels like to be a parent making this choice for the first time Um, because it's gone so well. I mean, it's been imperfect and uncomfortable and awkward and all the wonderful things, but it has gone so well that it's very hard for me to tap into how fearful we were and how nervous we were about making this choice that the majority of our neighbors weren't making. Um, Maya, you know, she has an incredible motley crew of friends she gets to learn um with kids a quarter of the kids at emerson are from their newcomers so they're recent immigrants who speak english as a second language so she's like in class with kids from yemen and central america and she's like even during distance learning it was so beautiful they would like take google earth trips to their various home countries and teach the other kids about where they were from and why they loved it um you know she she just gets to have this very broad and interesting experience with all these different kids and then on the adult side i've been having a major education you know i'm in multiracial parent community trying to figure out how much we do care about these test scores um and i'm interacting with a teaching staff that's multiracial and figuring out sort of how much space to take up and how to um channel my resources so it's it's just been an awesome and like i said you know sometimes uncomfortable journey you know, you mentioned one of the other um, schools in Oakland called Peralta, which used to be a majority black school. A lot of people from the neighborhood um, began to send their kids, their white parents, and it kind of flipped into being um, a school that's um, now at least plurality white. Um, is the same thing happening at Emerson just in the years that you've been there? Is it changing or is it is it mostly staying the way that it was when you first encountered it? 
You know, um, not so far, but actually Peralta is sort of like our, um, our worry. Like a lot of folks at Emerson are very aware of what happened at Peralta in terms of sort of, you know, this is coded white language, but this happens all over the country where a group of white parents, and this is like on that nice white parents podcast, like a group of white parents will say a critical mass of us is going to go to the school and make it better. And there's a lot of problems with that, but the biggest one is it's it's really gentrifying a school instead of integrating it because this is a group of people trying to remake the school in their own image of what they think success looks like or what they think community should feel like um, instead of showing up, which is what I'm attempting to do at Emerson and what um, I think a lot of white parents throughout the country are attempting to do in this moment, which is show up, um, kind of shut up and stay put, kind of find out what is the history of the school, what are the values, how do I authentically um, add my own and kind of talk about the ways in which I think about community or about, you know, what we want for our, our kids. Um, but in the case of schools where you have these like critical mass of white and privileged folks who say like, we're going to come in and make things better. Um, often black and brown folks are displaced and that's just so painful. You know, um, did you worry that in writing the book that you would sort of tip that balance though? You know, I, I did think about that, but, um, a, I wanted to like right size my own influence. I'm not sure I'm that influential. And as I write about in the book, I've had like 9 million coffee dates with people, basically none of whom choose to go to Emerson. So, so far my track record is not that I'm incredibly influential in that regard. But the other thing is uh, there are 81 schools in this district. It's like 81 schools. And so there are so many beautiful black and brown majority communities that if white folks are interested in being a part of an integration, like, you know, very intentionally integrating schools that they can choose that are not Emerson, that are just, you know, waiting for more racial and economic diversity. We're talking with journalist Courtney Martin. Her new book is Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America. And we want to hear from you. If you're a white parent, given the segregation of American public schools, what responsibility do you feel to try to change the school landscape? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We'll be back with more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with journalist Courtney Martin. Her new book is Learning in Public, Lessons for a Racially Divided America. Uh, Courtney, you know, we're talking about your personal um, story in the kind of first segment of the show. I want to talk a little bit more broadly about school segregation and uh, and where we are with it as a nation. Um, And I think it's in part because it may just be hard for people to believe um, that school segregation has persisted so deeply uh, beyond, you know, Brown v. Board of Education. So what did you um, learn about school segregation uh, during the, the the book? Well, I think you're so right. I, I came to believe that most Americans have um, almost a dangerous amount of information about school integration, which is we have this impression of Brown v. Board and Ruby Bridges 
And um, it, it leads one to believe that we already did this, right? Like we already integrated schools. There was policy and there was this like very salient, unforgettable images of especially black kids integrating schools. Well, the peak of integration was actually in 1988, you know, when you and I, Alexis, were like in elementary school and it's gone down since then. And I think even more importantly, as we look forward this fall, we'll see what happens. But my guess is, and a lot of the educational advocates I'm talking to believe we will be even more segregated because of sort of the private school um, influx from white and privileged parents who are trying to avoid distance learning. And a lot of black families have chosen to stay in homeschooling arrangements because it worked out better for them and their kids. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens this fall. Um, we have really the policy Brown v. Board was way ahead of the culture. And so while it was um, a really noble thing, white and or privileged parents all over the country did basically everything they could to resist it. And we also put the onus of integration in almost every uh, possible um, geographic location on black and brown families. Um, and I think we have a simple story about that, too. It's like, oh, well, black and brown families got the chance for a better opportunity um, but the truth is there were incredible black and brown schools all over this country that got destroyed by Brown v. Board. Um, and, you know, you, you when you kind of slow down and you actually like viscerally imagine what it felt like for those kids um, and, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones and other great um, journalists and academics have written about this. But when you slow down and imagine what it was like to either be like bust 45 minutes or in the case of like um, Ruby Bridges, sit in a classroom by yourself for an entire year. I mean, the spiritual and kind of emotional costs that we've put on black and brown families is, is so profound. Yeah. And of course, like at the core of it is that schools, generally speaking, are linked with where people live. And we also have this uh, incredible segregation of neighborhoods as well. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Jack Schneider, who's a thinker I, I like a lot, um, says if you, you know, when you buy a home, you buy a school. So while we, we talk about public schools, there are a bunch of different dynamics here that make them inherently sort of private in nature. One is being able to buy into a district, property taxes, um, funding schools is obviously part of that. PTA funding is a huge part of that. Um, you know, there's a, a very highly sought after white, mostly white and high uh, high resourced school about you know a mile away from ours who raises upwards of five hundred thousand dollars a year um in pta money and in at emerson we're lucky if you know we raise 10 to you know 20 would be like the most we would ever raise so when you look at a, a stat like that it's like yeah theoretically these are public schools but the effect of private uh dollars within them whether via real estate or via fundraising is profound um, I want to bring in you all, our listeners, because a lot of people on the phones, a lot of people want to talk about this. Um, let's people bring, have some feelings about pe- this people topic, have some Alexis. Feelings. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard. I've gathered. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Aaron from Oakland. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hey, good morning. Thank you, call, or thank you, guests, for all this work. Uh, I really found it resonates with our experience. Uh, I, we lived in Oakland for about 15 years. Uh, my twin sons uh, are pr- mixed race, but they present as white. I myself am white. Uh, we actually d- showed make the choice many years ago to go to a charter school first that we didn't think was reflective of the diversity of our community. And so later decided to send our kids uh, to Edna Brewer and then later now to Oakland High School. Uh, and my question for for you is, what role does the social or political consciousness uh, play of the families involved or the children involved in integration versus just like looking at 
what what the faces of the children look like? Mm, great question. Um, good question. And Edna Brewer is actually involved in a really interesting new enrollment pilot. I don't know if you've heard about it, um, Aaron, but there are three schools in the district that are part of this new pilot to see if we can shift how enrollment structurally works, which would be a massively important thing in the city. Um, the culture, you know, the culture fight of trying to get white and our privileged parents to think differently about schools is is simultaneously important, but really we have to think about policy. So I'm excited that Edna is a part of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is where I have received some awesome mentoring by a national organization called Integrated Schools. And I write about actually my relationship with the creator of that organization who tragically died during the writing of it. But her name was Courtney Everts McKitten and um, white mom from L.A. who had this insight quite early on as an anthropologist that like white people were really holding segregation up even in this day and age and that she wanted to be a force to do it differently. And so she she's the one who really had sort of planted the seeds for this contemporary movement that I'm now part of. There are chapters all over the country, and I actually run the one in the Bay Area with my friend Rachel Lada. Um, and the, the idea is like, not only do you make this choice, but then you have to really think about how you're showing up in the space. And, you know, we were getting at this a bit with the old Peralta example. Um, I think a lot about you know, when I um, throw in my two cents and when I sit and listen, I think a lot about who's actually at the parent meetings at a lot of schools that are starting to integrate like Emerson, you'll find that white parents are almost exclusively in leadership, even though there's such a like tiny minority of the parent population. Um, so I think a lot about like who's showing up to our parent meetings, what kinds of forms of communication do we have with each other? Um, and making sure that that works for different kinds of parents who have different work hours, different, you know, um, comfort levels with different kinds of technology, different languages, you know, at our school language translation is a huge issue. Um, so just walking in with that kind of consciousness and that commitment to being really self-examined, I'm constantly asking myself, like, how do I know that? Like when I have a, a sort of snap judgment about like, we should have more of this in the school, or we should have less of that in the school thinking like, how do I know? And like, can I talk to a few other people? And I think that's, there's a lot of like theoretical talk among progressives about accountability. It's sort of a buzzword. Um, and I've really come to get better muscles for like the accountable accountability within community. So if I think of something and I'm like, you know, is that a white ideal that I'm pressing on the school? Then I can ask a, a friend of mine that's a parent of color in the community, like, how do you feel about this thing? Um, or a few of them and see like, if I can sort of pressure test my own assumptions. Well, and you actually leave a lot of those moments where you sort of made a snap judgment and then kind of work back with yourself to kind of show yourself, as you say, learning in public. Obviously, that was a very conscious uh, writing decision. But when you read the book now, are you like, God, I wish I had cut that? <laughs> Just, or, do you, or do you feel good about having sort of left in that, the, that, the, the road that you were taking within yourself? Um, I love the way you put that, Alexis. I, you know, I'm embarrassed. Um, I'm embarrassed for myself. And I think other people are embarrassed for me. That's one of the reactions <laughs> to this book is like, oh, my God, I can't believe you put that in. But I am convinced, and I might be wrong, but I'm pretty convinced that the only way to kind of decenter white people and to help white people engage in racial justice and equity fights in like a very deep way is to name the water we swim in, which is whiteness, right? To name the language and the expectations and like the social mores and all these things that like we never say out loud because we're too embarrassed to admit that that A, we're white, and B, that there's a whole world of, of kind of culture that goes with that. Some of it just, you know, 
plain old racist. Some of it, you know, awkward and just born of the fact that we have grown up in such segregated ways. So we just haven't had a lot of opportunities to be in multiracial community, which is, by the way, one of the awesome things that Maya, my daughter, gets is that she will not hopefully be as awkward as I am. She'll be awkward in other ways, I'm sure. But like (laughs) that she will have all these muscles from the youngest age of growing up in multiracial community. Um, And by the way, like important to insert that. Um, that is what the research shows. Rucker C. Johnson, who's this professor at Berkeley, who's written a a fantastic book called Children of the Dream, did the most vast research um, on integration. And he found a dose response relationship. The earliest and the longer that kids are in integrated environments, the more positive effects for all of them. So for black and brown kids, indigenous kids, they do better on tests. They have better achievement data. They graduate more often they actually have longer um, lives, which is so wild, and earn more over a lifetime. And then white kids do fine, like don't don't suffer academically and have this whole set of social emotional skills that allow them to like work and collaborate and live in multiracial environments. They're less likely to grow up and live in segregated, you know, white predominant neighborhoods. They're more likely to have multiracial friendships over a lifetime. Um, So the research is quite clear on how effective integration is. There are a lot of limitations to integration, which I also try to really work into the book um, that are super important to consider. But I think the data is really there and a lot of people don't realize it. Yeah. We're talking with journalist Courtney Martin. Her new book is Learning in Public. If you're a parent of color, what's your reaction to the movement of white families choosing to integrate schools? Or maybe share your thoughts with us about how your choice of school might affect the community around you. Call us now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, we have a few comments about um, parents and, and PTA uh, groups. Joseph writes, I understand that there is some sharing of PTA funds across schools. Please discuss. And Liz writes, I'd be interested in hearing Courtney's perspective on the role of PTAs in public schools, in particular in relation to school segregation. What can parents do to make sure their school PTAs do not turn our public schools into quasi-private uh, institutions? In Oakland, there's an amazing organization called Equity Allies for OUSD, and they have a fund that um, basically allows public schools to filter a percentage of their PTA funds into their fund, and then they distribute it among the schools that need it most. And they have a really um, thoughtful calculation about how to think about which schools need it most. Um, and I have watched kind of from the inside the folks who are running that work really fight an uphill battle to get some of the most resource schools in the city to donate just 10%. Emerson, who, as I pointed out, doesn't raise a lot of money, has always donated 10% since it's had a PTA. Like the idea of sharing has just seemed very second nature to us. Um, But I've seen that there's been a lot of struggle in some of the more highly resourced schools to convince people to donate, which in and of itself is indicative of, I think, what an uphill battle this whole thing is. Um, I mean, the most radical part of me, and I'd be curious what you think about this, Alexis, but like the most radical part of me thinks PTAs should just be abolished. Like there should be no private fundraising for public schools and we have to actually think about equitable funding um, in, in a public way, again, public schools. Um, but I think that's a long way off. So it's interesting to look at their experiments in Seattle and LA and other areas of the country where people are really trying to redistribute PTA funds in a deep way. Um, unfortunately, they, those efforts always just come up against huge resistance from privileged, economically privileged folks who say, we raise this money for our school. We want to keep it for our kids. Yeah. 
And of course, I mean, the other funding thing to say, not not to get into it right now, but is, you know, Prop 13, which limited property Ugh. taxes in 1978, obviously has a, a massive impact. So you have yeah. incredibly high real estate uh, prices in Oakland, and yet you also don't have the commensurate rise in, yeah. in funding. For I have I have a little line in the coda about Prop 13, and it was like, I just wanted to put like seven um, heartbreaking emojis to like express. <laughs> I was like, how do I express how upsetting this is that this didn't pass? Because having lived inside the like very visceral pers- interpersonal texture of this book, like that policy would have meant so much. And it was just completely heartbreaking to me yeah. that it didn't pass. And, and Courtney referring to a, a, an attempt to split the role so that basically, um, you know, the property taxes would come unfrozen for commercial property owners. Um, let's bring in Janet from Berkeley. Janet, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I just have to say that um, I'm a, a parent of color. My son is a, a young adult now, and I had the option to send him to Berkeley High School and wanted to do so and did some research. And Berkeley High does not do well with African-American um, males that are college bound. Mm. And, you know, they did a documentary on it. And when I called and asked questions about it, they couldn't answer why things hadn't changed. And so I had to opt to use retirement money, uh, my former husband and I, to send him to a private school just so he could have a safe, um, um, good environment to be in. And one of my friends who's a teacher there who went to Harvard said she's heard teachers in the, cl- in, the in the break room talking about when they have kids of color in the school within a school program that they feel their class is going to be dummied down. And mm. so, you know, even within the public school system, you have those issues. The neighborhood I live in, I see parents walking their kids to the, to the public schools nearby me, a good district um, and Contra Costa on the border of Alameda. And the parents, the children look afraid of me and, mm. and won't speak and the parents don't speak. And so even though the school is diverse, the parents are teaching their children a subtle lesson about how to be uncomfortable with people that look different from them. Mm. So education starts before they get to school and with their parents teaching them, you know, it's a neighbor. It's okay to not be afraid of someone Mm -hmm. that doesn't look like mom and dad. And I have neighbors two doors away that still won't speak. And that's not uncommon in this area. And that's right here in the Bay Area, you know, in between Albany and um, Berkeley. Yeah, oh, Janet, that's my comment. Obviously, it doesn't help too much to apologize for racism in general, but I'm sorry that you've <laughs> had those experiences. And, you know, Courtney, I, I, just to, to get to Janet's um, question, you know, two things came out of that for me. The sort of importance of, of teachers of color and specifically black teachers, um, which you yes. talk about in the book. And also, yeah, that there are these broader societal things that that we can't necessarily fix just in the schools. No, absolutely not. Yeah. But I, and, but I do think, and I, I wonder, you know, where this sits with you or Janet, like that's part of why I fell in love with this topic is that public schools to me are one of the last great hopes for actually building a multiracial democracy. Like we don't actually have a lot of shared public institutions anymore, places where we bump up against each other because of segregation, residential segregation being so designed through redlining and, um, you know, federal interventions, which is very much alive in Oakland. Um, you know, there are not a lot of spaces. If you don't have religious institutions, if you don't, if you're not like deep into civic organizing, there are not a lot of spaces where like the average family is going to have interracial multi-class experiences. And so that's why I don't think schools are everything, but I do feel like schools should be a, a really deep focus for any of us who are worried about this fragile democracy. Um, and in terms of what Janet said, I mean, I think this is why it's very understandable that a lot of black families 
choose private schools, choose Catholic schools, choose homeschooling, as I mentioned, um, because the public schools haven't served their kids. And many of them, it hasn't served them for generations. So it hasn't served the grandparents. It hasn't served the parents. It hasn't served the kids. And then, you know, we wonder why, um, you know, black and brown families in this city are trying to navigate with school choice and figure out where they can send their kids because they've had generations of being under-resourced and underserved. Um, So I think that that's part of what on the flip side makes me so frustrated with white and privileged folks is that I don't think we right size our risk around these choices or um, think very clear eyed about what we are, are being asked to do in terms of like share the resources, share the love, um, advocate for black and brown teachers, as you said, um, you know, we basically homeschool our kids, those of us who are economically privileged and surround them with books and surround them with enrichment opportunities. And there are so many kids in this city who don't get to do that because they go to schools that have so little funding to make those things happen. Yeah. You know, one listener writes, and I, I've also heard this in my research for work as well, you know, as an educator, I remember having a conversation with a senior educator, also African-American, about how we both miss the segregated school communities we grew up in, the role models, peer group, and opportunity to participate in everything. Integration took all that comfort and opportunity away. Um, and it, when we come back from the break, I would like you to talk about the resistance that you encountered from black um, parents and, and educators about white parents integrating schools. Um, We're talking with journalist Courtney Martin. Her new book is Learning in Public. And we do want to hear from you if you're a white parent, given the segregation of American public schools. What responsibility do you feel to change the school landscape? And if you're a parent of color, how do you feel about this movement that you're hearing about? Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with journalist Courtney Martin. Her new book is Learning in Public. Her Substack newsletter is The Examined Family. Before the break, we were talking about um, segregation and some of the pushback you've gotten from uh, black people here in Oakland and elsewhere um, on kind of the whole idea of uh, white people integrating uh, majority black schools. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that in the book? Yeah, well, the the narrative that sort of held that tension within the book is that my kid's TK teacher, which is transitional kindergarten, um, incredible black woman educator, left the school after the year that my kid was with her to start her own preschool in East Oakland. It's called the Learning Forest, beautiful little haven that she has built out there. Um, and Mrs. Minor, her name's Artemis Minor, she and I started having these regular conversations about integration. Um, I asked her if I could interview her for the book, and she said, yeah, come by during nap time. We'll sit in the kitchen and and hash it out. And then as soon as I sat down, she said, you mean integration or gentrification? And I was like, all right, this is going to be a really real conversation, which is exactly what I was, I was craving. 
And so we really hung in there together and tried to figure out, she's born and raised in Oakland, um, had many experiences actually similar to what Janet was earlier call, caller was describing of feeling like there was kind of a tyranny of low expectations for black kids, including herself when she was in more integrated spaces. And yet when she was at black Catholic schools, she felt that she was really expected to be excellent and that it's had this kind of lifetime impact on her. And so she and I talked a lot about that as, as a daughter of Oakland, as a mother of two black girls, as a, an educator in Oakland, the ways in which she has a lot of cynicism about integration to this day. Um, and so I really, I trying to hold all of that, right? Like say, I think integration based on this research that I've read and that Rutgers C. Johnson um, has established really is one of our best chances at equity in this country right now. And I also simultaneously get that it is not without its cost, so that proximity is not simple, um, that there is a loss to not having um, exclusively black and brown spaces. Um, and there are still black and brown spaces, right? There are still spaces um, that are not obviously integrated that um, have a sense of Afrocentric kind of excellence, which is what Mrs. Minor held up as, as the real model. And so what do we do to preserve and support those spaces. I mean, white and privileged folks can obviously donate to those kinds of schools um, very intentionally. So there, there are a wide variety of ways to be useful, I think, as a white and privileged parent who cares about educational equity, but we got to actually do it. We can't just talk about it. Yeah, you know, uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, I think the story you tell in this book is is largely a black and white one. Um, and I was wondering through the book, you know, how you see where sort of different Latin groups fall, different Asian groups um, and whether you see the, the calculus as being uh, different for us. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that for sure. Um, you know, I was trying to hold a lot in this book, the history, the contemporary situation, our own narrative, which I felt like would help the book be propulsive and be like really read as opposed to a more kind of clinical nonfiction treatment. And so um, I think there are a lot of nuances around kind of multiracial identity that are not necessarily in the book's natural narrative that I told. Um, and I think there's su such a need for that. I mean, there's actually some incredible um, podcast episodes from integrated schools around specifically, for example, the Latinx movement in Texas around integration and the pushback to it. Um, Asian American folks have such an interesting role to play in all of this. Um, and I think the book Minor Feelings, which I read during the course of writing my own book, made me think a lot about my learning curve around the multiplicity of Asian American identity and how that shows up in our schools, especially in Oakland, right? There's such a rich um, Asian American history here. Um, so I think there are, there's like, you know, it could be a million volumes, hopefully not written by me, right? <laughs> written by a bunch of different people who intersect this issue in so many different ways. Um, I did find it really show up in terms of my, uh, you know, pretty small but important exploration of private schools and independent schools and the way in which um, these schools, particularly in Oakland, but in any sort of progressive city, really sell themselves as bastions of social justice, that they're going to teach your kid to be systems thinkers. And so many of these places have what, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones calls curated diversity. So there'll be like a small percentage of kids of color in each classroom. And many times I think those kids are biracial. There's like a real um, coincidence of kids who manage to figure out their way into, into private schools being multiracial and then being sort of held up as the evidence that these schools are sharing, sharing the wealth, um, sharing the love. And, and I think there's, again, a bunch of emotional and spiritual costs of being that kid in that classroom. Um, and that's something I, I want to read more about. And, and I, um, you know, have read some really powerful and heard some incredible talks around. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thought I have is just, you know, as a, you know, you've got an immigrant father who cared more about education than anything. It's just like kind of was part of uh, not just my family, but like many uh, families with immigrants that just, you know, education was everything. So the idea that yeah. you would choose even from a relatively privileged place to not pick the the school that was the academically highest performing, I think it's just sort of a, a, a somewhat alien thought. Yeah, totally. Well, and I think it's that's all tied up in, you know, the American dream mythology of that, that academic skills um, are the gateway to economic security, et cetera. And we could have like a very interesting conversation, which, you know, again, is another volume about does that actually play out? Does that actually happen? And for the kids for whom it does happen, does it feel good? Like, is that the the definition of a good life? And do they end up thriving and feeling like, um, you know, all of that uh, grinding academically was led them to a life that they loved. Um, so I think there's a lot of big and very deep questions about like what we want for our kids, what we say this country is all about in terms of um, education as a pathway to the well-lived life. Um, and I think there's just a, a lot of, um, I mean, this is not to say that immigrants are deluded because I think immigrants uh, see the best in America and like, thank God they do because we, we need people to still see the best in America. But there, there's a lot of delusion in this country collectively, especially among white and privileged people about how open we really are to letting people use educational access as a, as a ladder towards, you know, the good life. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting though, too, because there's also a sort of transnational aspect to this too, right? I mean, people in other countries also strive to put their kids in the, in the best schools, even absent, you know, uh, the somewhat, um, the, the complexities of economic and social mobility in the U.S., which which are I think are over overplayed in the traditional American dream. So it, it is it I think it is a little bit complicated um, by people's experiences outside the country um, and in in the countries where they're from, saying like, oh, but like you know, if in Ecuador I tried to get my kid the best education, why would I not do the same thing here? You know, uh, in the U.S. Uh, yeah. But let's let's um. Let's go to a, a couple more calls. Um, Justin from Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I am biracial. I went to a majority black elementary school, a majority white or 95 percent white high school, a historically black college and an Ivy League grad school. Uh, my wife is Vietnamese and we chose Berkeley over someplace like Miranda so that our kids could be around black and brown kids as well as others. Um, I'm just curious, as we've seen certain corporations here recently um, start to incentivize executives to um, promote diversity uh, in, their, in their organizations, if colleges and universities were to do something similar, we've seen them drop the ACT and uh, SAT requirements I imagine because they've seen so many of these kids that are so focused on their math scores versus those social and soft skills uh, that are required for success in life. I'm just curious if colleges were to emphasize the diversity of the school that you went to, if that might incentivize parents on their decision. Thank you. Oh, oh that's an interesting, interesting question. Justin, have you um, heard anything along those lines, Courtney? 
I did hear anecdotally a story that horrified me, which was that um, some white families, this was in the Baltimore area, would send their kids to the predominantly white, highly resourced high school, and then their senior year or junior year, I guess it would have to be for college admissions, transfer them to the majority black college where they would then be the valedictorian. Majority black high school. Sorry, yeah, majority black high school, because then they would be like the valedictorian based on their um, grades and kind of stand out among that school community because from what I understand college admissions looks you know within a high school at the respective applicants to that college and so of course they would stand out in terms of their like extracurricular enrichment and all the other things which is just disgusting obviously <laughs> like that's so gross to me um so I've heard about it in in the inverse to it seems like what the caller was suggesting which is something that would actually be a greater equalizer Um, but I think it's a great idea. I mean, we need to be thinking about these things on each and every level. And even, you know, importantly, when we do integrate, especially high schools, we often find that the classes are still segregated. So even within classrooms, there's a real need, uh, you know, within a particular school, there's a real need to think about who are kids socializing with, but also like, who are they learning next to who gets access to the AP classes. Um, so it's not just about like the demographic numbers of a school. It's about what's happening inside the building as well. Um, thank you for that, Justin. Um, we have a, a listener uh, comment. Sarah writes, we send our white kids to a minority white high school because we believe that the social experience is as important as academics. But the push to abolish all honors classes is a difficult pill to swallow. The kids that come into our school have very different academic experiences. While I understand the push towards equity, it feels like high school is too late to try to rectify this issue. In the non-tracked courses, my kids really struggle to stay engaged. It is leading many families to move to private schools uh, or other options. So kind of two questions in that. Uh, uh, obviously, there's a question about tracking. There's a question about, are, is, is this different for elementary school and high school? Um, and maybe you could uh, address Sarah's comment, Courtney. I think there are different um, approaches to, you know, quote unquote, gifted and talented in different regions. Here in Oakland, I don't see a big emphasis on tracking kids as early as elementary school. Um, I think the way in which we informally track our kids is just that white and privileged folks give their kids all kinds of enrichment activities after school, you know, special language instruction or extra math tutoring or whatever the the case may be. So we sort of do it informally. I don't think it happens formally in elementary school. Um, And I, I really empathize with this caller because I think this is one of the things I was trying to do in this book is say like, okay, you're dropped down in the middle of a system in the middle of a moment for a nation, not to mention a city and your own family, like, what do you do, right? There, there's no kind of um, perfect situation. There's no choice without complexity. And it sounds like she's facing one of those, which is the, the reality might be that her kid needs more enrichment in order to keep being excited about learning. And that's something that, you know, regardless of what you, where you come from as a parent, no matter how much money is in your bank account, like all of us want our kids to be excited about learning, right? That's like such a basic foundational shared value. Um, So it's really understandable that she would be worried about that. And on the other hand, there are big structural implications of having honors classes. So I don't have an answer. And I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think any of us can have simple answers about these very complex systems that we find ourselves a part of. Let's bring in Camille from Redwood City. Yes. Hello. Hi, Camille. Hi. Um, yes. Um, I I have several points. Um, I have been through some of the private schools on the peninsula, whether it's through the admissions process and or attending. Not me personally, but my my child. And I really think we should treat snobbery as a form of intolerance. It actually 
And I, I like how Courtney mentioned it before with the PTAs. Um, in private schools and in, even in some public schools, you people are discouraged from participating because of the snobbery that's very subtle. We all know how to keep people out just with a comment, a snide comment, a, a comment about how something's expensive. You know, sort of like those are things that keep people from participating because they don't feel like they should. And then it doesn't necessarily trickle down to the kids who may be unaware of it, but it might still affect them socially um, because parents will influence sometimes who kids get together with and have play groups, uh, play dates with. And I guess my other comment was, uh, and I like the, the person who called from Berkeley about college admissions. I think that, you know, um, for example, Brock, I'm very bluntly Brock Turner. You know, how does somebody like that get admitted? Um, you know, how is that not, how is that, that kind of character not, you know, we need to delve deeper into the characters of our students because we are losing a lot of people who are of color or who are not from um, wealthy backgrounds and who, who are not, you know, do not have opportunities because of, because the counterparts are so privileged and they can frame, they can hire counselors to help them get admitted to college. They can hire tutors. And we have to look really beyond that and look at the character, not so much at test scores and grades or color or, you know, this person, you know, has, you know, but just the character of the person, whether they are wealthy or not, I think yeah. has to be a really important part of admissions because then it trickles down to the elementary school because, you know, we parents want their kids eventually to go to a good college. So right. the snobbery you see today at an early age is because the parents are thinking, I want my kids to go to this elite institution later. For and sure. I'm speaking from an Asian person's point of view. And I, and I see that in my own community, but I also see that, uh, you know, amongst people of all colors, like this, this desire to, to grab the golden, you know, the, the golden. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, Camille, yeah. let me uh, ask um, Courtney about um, that. I think there's a, there are a few different things in your, in your comments you might want to respond to. Yeah. Um, I love the way you put that, like an intolerance to snobbery. Um, snobbery is one of my least favorite things. Um, one of the things that really came out of the writing that I've done and the you know, hundreds of emails I've received from parents all over the country is that particularly parents who have kids with disabilities have found that integrating schools, a school like Emerson, the one my kid goes to, are often more welcoming um, for kids with disabilities. And, you know, it's really interesting to think about why that is. I think part of it is that in a truly multiracial school where you have less of the influence of white supremacy and the um, achievement orientation and competitive orientation that goes along with white supremacy, you have a school in which there's like a lot of different kids with a lot of different abilities, backgrounds, cultural references. And so there's less of a chance for, to use, you know, a very sophisticated word, um, kids to think other kids are weird because like everyone's just kind of weird. And so I think folks, um, parents have found that, that integrating places are much more welcoming to their kids um, with disabilities, which it just made me think about sort of the snobbery and intolerance. And, and one of the things I love so much about schools that are often overlooked by other folk, other white and privileged parents. Um, so yeah, I think that that's really important. And I think, you know, the Brock Turner uh, question, part of what I'm trying to do in this book, again, is really name the water that is whiteness, um, so that we can actually understand that there's language and expectations and norms and and that the social capital that white people share with one another has a profound impact. So it is, it's buying the, the tutor, the SAT tutor time, or it's, you know, um, getting the letter of recommendation from your friend who you went to business school with. Like all of these things that to us often seem just like sort of subtle, organic, natural ways in which we know how to move and, um, you know, maneuver for our kids actually have 
profound, powerful implications for other kids. And um, so that's one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is like name those things, like make the social capital visible so that we can actually wrestle with what we should be doing with it. Well, you know, there's also the the, just the landscape of how schooling works in the United States. And Todd writes, um, any thoughts on Finland's approach to improve their public schools by restricting the option for parents to buy their way out using private schools? Yeah, I think anything that Oakland can do to lessen white and privileged people's ability to manipulate the system would be fantastic. Um, I am still, you know, doing the hearts and minds campaign here um, and believing in the redemption of white and privileged people to think more deeply about this and make different choices on their own volition. But we've really proven ourselves um, mostly incapable of not trying to strategize to get the best for our kids uh, predominantly. And so I think you know, and Oakland, by the way, has a much more vulnerable system than Berkeley does to this kind of manipulation. There are better systems and Oakland needs to get one. Yeah. We've been talking with Courtney Martin, author of Learning in Public. Her Substack newsletter is The Examined Family. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you so much, Alexis. Yeah. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.